In 2009, I published a novel called All Other Nights about Jewish spies during the American Civil War. It was my third novel, so I thought I knew something about crazy readers. What I didn't realize is that when you publish a book about the Civil War, people come to your readings in costume. Readers would show up at my bookstore readings in their Confederate uniforms, sometimes with their historic muskets on their backs. These readers would tell me about how they had taken on the identity of their ancestor, Charles Ingram III of the 7th South Carolina Regiment. Then they'd tell me about how every summer they'd go to Gettysburg and set up their tents for four days and reenact the battle, bringing along their hardtack and their pig bristle toothbrushes. When I met these readers, I would smile, nod, and sign their books while silently thinking, you, sir, are insane. But then I would go home and build a sukkah in my backyard. You see, a sukkah is a little hut that represents the temporary dwellings where ancient Israelites once lived. I was taking on the identity of my ancestors and reenacting their desert wanderings, along with millions of Jews around the world. My crazy readers only spent four days every summer in their tents at Gettysburg. Every autumn, I was in my sukkah for twice as long. My readers play the fife and eat hardtack, and my family and I play the shofar and eat matzah. Jews are the original reenactors, and I was thousands of years ahead of Charles Ingram III. Who was more insane, me or him? But there's actually a rather important difference between the hardtack and the matzah. Jews eat matzah to reenact our liberation from slavery. My friend Charles Ingram III is eating hardtack to reenact his attempt to maintain it. I might have been amused by these play-acting confederates at Barnes & Noble, but then I would have to overlook the extreme creepiness of watching people romanticize a society founded on enslavement. My crazy readers actually forced me to confront hard questions. What are the limits to reenactment? Are there better or worse ways to engage with our collective past? Today, we're going to explore the fascinating, bizarre, and sometimes reprehensible lives of American Jews who were involved in the Civil War and dive into a difficult question. What do you do with a past that you'd rather forget? I'm Dara Horn, and this is Adventures with Dead Jews. The Jews of Charlotte, North Carolina, have been dealing with the problem of unpleasant history for decades in very concrete form. Or rather, in granite form. Specifically, in the form of a huge, heavy granite monument honoring the Secretary of State of the Confederacy, Judah P. Benjamin, who just happened to be a Jew. But let's be honest here. When it comes to this monument, Judah Benjamin didn't just happen to be a Jew. The fact that he was a Jew is the entire reason that this particular Confederate monument exists at all. Because in 1948, the Jews of Charlotte paid for it. They have been trying to get rid of it ever since. The best history that we actually have about what happened with the monument was actually written by someone named Harry Golden. And Harry Golden wrote a book called Two Cents Plain, and he was a historian in the Charlotte area, but also very well known in the racial justice movements in the 60s. Actually, Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail references Harry Golden. That's Asher Knight, the current senior rabbi of Temple Bethel in Charlotte, North Carolina. Bethel is one of two Charlotte synagogues whose names are literally carved in stone on that monument to Judah Benjamin. The story of that monument is a disturbing one, and not just because it honors a leader of a racist and treasonous slave state. 
It also has an extra grotesque layer, which reveals quite a bit about the uncomfortable lives of American Jews. The story starts in 1948, when the United Daughters of the Confederacy chose Charlotte as the city for their national convention. This annual event always included the dedication of a historical marker in the host city, honoring famous Confederates. For those of you following along at home, this is one reason why there are so many Confederate monuments around. White ladies were putting them up all over the South for about 90 years. For that year's monument, the chapter's historian recommended that they honor Judah P. Benjamin for what seemed like a pretty stupid reason. Information and letters that had been written to Jefferson Davis's wife indicating that Judah P. Benjamin had actually stayed overnight in the guest house of a also a local Charlottean, Abram Weil, who was a merchant in, in Charlotte. And basically, you know, Judah P. Benjamin stayed here overnight as he was fleeing the, you know, the North. In other words, Benjamin slept here while nobly running away from the Yankees who wanted his head. This does not seem particularly worthy of carving in stone. But there may have been another reason why the Daughters of the Confederacy found this idea appealing. Apparently, they had heard that Jews have money, and they wanted some. So once the national organization passed a resolution to build this monument, the local chapter approached Rabbi Knight's long-ago predecessor, along with the rabbi of the other Charlotte synagogue, with their brilliant idea. They actually asked Temple Israel and Temple Bethel to help support and create the funds to support the marker in honor of Judah P. Benjamin. And our boards did. Yes, Jews paid for this monument to permanently honor their fellow Jews' everlasting contribution to a white supremacist slave state. What could possibly go wrong? Then things sort of went haywire, right? And what, what happened was that a banker in New York City who was the son of um, one of the daughters of the Confederates here in Charlotte received a letter from his mom that, you know, sort of telling him about what was happening in Charlotte and about how they were going to honor Judah P. Benjamin. And this banker in New York City wrote a letter to all of the daughters of the Stonewall Jackson chapter of the Daughters of the Confederacy explaining that by placing the monument, the Daughters of the Confederacy's members would, would erroneously begin to think that our local Jews are quote-unquote good Jews. And then he added that they shouldn't be deceived because in fact, the Jews are just sort of unrevealed, even the good ones are sort of unrevealed, and you know, Jews are just objectionable. And it concluded that Judah P. Benjamin was, and I'm you know, not making this up, was nothing more than a communistic Jewish politician from the North. In case you were wondering, Judah Benjamin, who died in 1884, was not a communist, and he also wasn't from the North. But the daughters of the Confederacy were not taking any chances with perfidious Jews. The local Stonewall Jackson chapter of the Daughters of the Confederacy then met and voted and determined to rescind the offer of creating this monument in honor of Judah P. Benjamin. Unfortunately, the checks had already been cashed. The communist Northern Jew's name was literally already carved in stone. So at this point, right, they already pretty much have the monument. They have it inscribed that, you know, the Daughters of the Confederacy and the Temple Bethel and Temple Israel. And at this point, the rabbis start to realize and the Jewish community starts to realize what's going on. And it becomes a huge problem. The huge problem, of course, wasn't that they were honoring a slaveholding traitor. The huge problem was that the curtain had been pulled back. And the Jews suddenly realized that their racist white neighbors didn't like them after all. This was a huge problem for their racist white neighbors too. Huge enough that it demanded national attention. The historian, her name is Mrs. Yarbaugh. She decided to actually go to the president of the United Daughters of the Confederacy. And she actually traveled to Little Rock, Arkansas, to the home of the president general of the United Daughters of the Confederacy. 
and basically pleaded the case that the local Stonewall Jackson chapter of the Confederacy had made the wrong call. And at the national convention, there was just going to be this huge problem. The national organization wasn't going to flush that magic Jewish money down the toilet. They unanimously overruled the Charlotte chapter and announced that the monument would be installed as planned. But the Charlotte women weren't about to let this go either. The local chapter actually decided to resist the national organization to the very bitter end. And it had to go before the city council. The women in the chapter actually gave testimony that by placing it in the place that they were going to place it, that it was going to actually impede traffic and people walking on the sidewalk and the buses. The whole bus system was going to be slowed down because of this marker. Anything, basically, to get rid of Judah Benjamin. But as I mentioned, it was already carved in stone. This huge granite monument that has the synagogue's names on it and our local Jewish community wanted nothing to do with it anymore. They wanted to throw the thing in the local river. And it then turned out that when they decided that they were gonna actually hold a dedication, no one wanted to speak. You know, the rabbis didn't wanna speak. Local politicians wanted nothing to do with this. People pulled out from the event to actually place the marker. And it just turned into this huge debacle. Nobody wanted Judah Benjamin. But like I said, carved in stone. As it turns out, nobody wants Judah Benjamin now either. The first week that I was here, living in Charlotte, I received a very angry email from someone from New York. Charlotte is a large banking city, and so Bank of America is located here, Wells Fargo is located here. It's the second largest banking city in the country. And I would receive on a regular basis emails from Jewish visitors to Charlotte who had seen the monument with just complete disdain and frustration and being upset. How could we have a monument celebrating Judah P. Benjamin and celebrating Judah P. Benjamin with the United Daughters of the Confederacy? How could we possibly have this monument? I emailed my predecessor, and my predecessor had already been working for years to try to get the monument removed. And she said, you know, I, I didn't think I was going to have to talk to you about this on your first week at On the Job. Knight's predecessor, Rabbi Judy Schindler, had been pushing the city to get rid of this monument for years. Every year, she was told it was impossible. A North Carolina law stipulates that Confederate monuments cannot be moved except to more prominent locations. And they also can't be moved to cemeteries or museums. Maybe you've heard that this has kind of been an issue in recent years. A battle over a similar situation led to the lethal white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017. Of course, the Jews always hated this particular monument. But 70 years ago, Jews in Charlotte hated it because white people were racist against them. Now, Jews in Charlotte hate it because it's racist against Black people. Then came the racial justice protests of the summer of 2020. In Charlotte, those protests took place right in front of the Judah Benjamin Monument, lovingly inscribed with the names of its donors, Temple Israel and Temple Bethel wasn't a good look. There was a be beautiful Black Lives Matter art installation that was put up on the street right in front of the monument. They stopped all traffic on the street. I bring my kids up there to go see it. And of course, in the corner of my eye, I'm looking at the monument. And I contacted my colleagues in the city and said, we've got to get this thing removed. Like this, this has to get removed now. Knight and his fellow rabbis mobilized their communities, enlisting hundreds of congregants to flood the municipal offices with phone calls, all to get rid of Judah Benjamin. They even tried commissioning an artist to cover the monument itself. Nothing worked. Until someone took a less diplomatic approach. Someone took a crowbar 
to the monument and basically started to chip away and destroy them. I got, it got spray painted and then it got attacked. Rabbi Schindler, who's my predecessor and I, had, have had lots of conversations about, had, you know, had we only known that it, it would have taken a crowbar to actually get this thing that maybe we would have probably gone and got arrested for in doing that in public defacement. That might sound like the end of the story, but nobody can get rid of Judah Benjamin. The city then chose, the moment that it got attacked, it chose to use a provision in the law to preserve the monument from further destruction. Yes, that's right. The city finally took the monument away for repairs. Today, Judah Benjamin's monument is sitting in storage, awaiting the next sordid chapter in the cringeworthy story of Jews and race in America. Here's the thing, though. Nobody could get rid of Judah Benjamin while he was alive, either. And that was not for lack of trying. Judah Benjamin was figuratively and literally an unsinkable Jew. By now, you might be wondering, who the heck was Judah Benjamin? And why, even after being dead for 150 years, does he still make everyone want to take a crowbar to his face? This guy was the smartest guy anybody had ever met. He was just about the most charming man you'd ever meet. He was the kind of guy, he loved to give parties, and at parties, they'd play party games, you know, like Bourrine, where you have to invent lines of poetry for a given rhyme ending. He would tell ghost stories. He would recite Tennyson, Shakespeare. He could recite things all day long. That's Jim Traub, a journalist and NYU professor who just published a new biography of Judah Benjamin. In Traub's book, Benjamin's early life is an enactment of an American ideal. Benjamin was descended from Sephardic Jews who had escaped the Spanish Inquisition 400 years earlier by fleeing to the New World. They were starving in the West Indies when they decided to try their luck in the States. Classic story. Poor kid, he's born in the Caribbean. They move first to North Carolina and then Charleston, South Carolina. The father's a kind of a nebbish. The storekeeper, unsuccessful, family never has any money, grow up over the top of the store. But the kid is unbelievably smart. Just because he's smarter than anybody else, incredibly, he gets into Yale when he's 14. Yale would only have one Jewish student in its history. If you're a Broadway fan, you might find this story of a poor outsider kid from the Caribbean who comes to the mainland and becomes a player in American history kind of familiar. And the world's gonna know your name. What's your name, man? Alexander Hamilton. My name is Alexander Hamilton. But Benjamin might have been even smarter than Hamilton. In any case, he was better at reinventing himself. Unlike Hamilton, Benjamin got expelled from his Ivy League school. We'll get back to why later. But as I mentioned before, nobody gets rid of Judah Benjamin. At 17, he gave himself a fresh start and triumphed takes himself to New Orleans, where he knows virtually nobody, and in short order becomes one of the most wealthy and successful lawyers in the South, uh, and stupefies judges and juries with his dazzling legal skill. Is elected senator from Louisiana, the first, or depending on how you count it, second Jew to ever be elected to the U.S. Senate. Is offered a, a position in the U.S. Supreme Court, first Jew to ever be offered that, says no. Offered an, an, an ambassadorship, first Jew to be offered that, says no. It is a brilliant orator in the Senate, but on behalf of the Confederacy, because we're now in the middle of the 1850s. After the election of 1860, when states, southern states, one by one begin to secede, Jefferson Davis declares the Confederacy and asks him to join the Confederate cabinet. Judah Benjamin wasn't just a member of the Confederate cabinet. In the Confederacy's four short years, he was the Confederate Attorney General, the Secretary of War, and the Secretary of State. His face was on the Confederate $2 bill. He held all kinds of unofficial roles, too. He was the Confederacy's spymaster. He wrote all of Confederate President Jefferson Davis's speeches. He was also Davis's closest advisor. 
Davis was often ill and the other cabinet members were often incompetent. So there were many weeks and months when Benjamin was basically running the Confederacy alone. And so this Jewish guy becomes something like the court Jew of the Confederacy, despised in the way that the court Jew is, indispensable in the way that the court Jew is. Jefferson Davis cannot live without him. It took a lot for a Jew to get there. Conveniently, Judah Benjamin had planned his entire life around becoming someone he wasn't. Moving to New Orleans had been his first smart move. New Orleans had, unlike any other city in the South, a kind of vast gradation of people from black to white. There was a word for being 164th black and for a word for being 63 64th black. The question of are you white or are you black trumped what otherwise might have been important identity questions like are you Jewish or are you a Christian? And so Jews were especially welcome in New Orleans because they were white. Benjamin was a Sephardic Jew from the Caribbean with dark hair, dark eyes, and a complexion comparable to Lin-Manuel Miranda's. Today, he might even be called a Jew of color. But New Orleans was so busy being racist that it did not have room in its brain to also be anti-Semitic. Also, there was something else that made Benjamin stand out. Many men found him soft and rather effeminate. He aroused suspicions in people. Those unnamed suspicions probably got him kicked out of Yale. But let's spell this out by looking at Benjamin's rather unusual marriage. He got married to this beautiful Creole girl, Natalie Saint-Martin, who was 16. He was uh, 20 or so. Totally bad idea. She could not have been. It was like he married Zsa Zsa Gabor, basically. It takes almost a decade for them to produce a child. Now, this is Catholic New Orleans, where you're supposed to have lots and lots of babies. So people thought that was very strange. But much stranger by far is that when the baby, Ninette, was one year old, Natalie came to her husband and said to him, I am leaving. Not I'm leaving you exactly. I'm leaving America. I'm moving to Paris, a place she'd never been to before. I'm taking Nanette with me. Now, your Southern husband in 1843 would have said, no, I'm manacling you to your bedpost. You and Nanette are not going anywhere. You will not humiliate me. But in fact, he said, okay. They left. He supported them for the rest of their lives. That gave him a reputation as a eunuch which would have been a nice euphemism, presumably, for a gay person. Then there's the fact that while his wife was in France, Benjamin lived with his wife's younger brother, who was often described as a dandy. But Benjamin was doing everything he could to be the perfect Southern gentleman, no matter the cost. Which brings us to the ultimate evil of Judah Benjamin's life. To solidify his position in the Senate, he bought a plantation. Now, Jews did not buy plantations. Jews practiced a series of urban arts and urban lifestyles. There were very, very few large plantations owned by Jews. It wasn't just any plantation either. It was a sugar plantation, which was the absolute worst. Unlike other crops, the sugar in sugarcane degrades very rapidly, and therefore the, the cane has to be not just harvested, but processed. A plantation is also a factory. And that process, that furious breakneck process of turning cane into sugar and processing the sugar, that consumed the lives of enormous numbers of people. It was killing labor in incredible heat and humidity with powerful machines that would also eat up people's limbs. Benjamin barely visited his own plantation, kind of like how he barely lived with his wife. Both were steps on his path to power. There is no question that the plantation was grotesque and evil. And there is also no question that it worked in his favor. The moral problems did not bother him at all. Judah Benjamin was a very ambitious man. Men who are driven by ambition cannot afford to think about the kind of constraints that are imposed by difficult moral questions because they have a hunger in them and that hunger drives them. Benjamin bought into racism and benefited from it. In a way, it served for him the same purpose as those Jews of Charlotte inscribing the Confederate monument with the name of Temple Bethel. In a white supremacist society, it put them on 
the white side of history. But weirdly, Benjamin's legendary ambition and drive were the opposite of what slavery was supposed to do for white people. The whole purpose of slavery was to provide white people with a wife of leisure. But Benjamin, like Hamilton, was nonstop. Perhaps that explains why people wanted to kick his face in. Once Judah Benjamin became a powerful person, that made him a target. At that level, the suspicion of Jews becomes much more operative because he wasn't some little shopkeeper. He wasn't an accountant. He was the representative of the people. And so increasingly, you see in 1850s, the 1850s, sniping at, at Benjamin for being of, of dubious loyalty. And a lot of this gay stuff, there's a tremendous uh, whispering campaign. This all blew up in Benjamin's face in 1862 when Jefferson Davis decided to make him Secretary of War, even though Benjamin knew exactly nothing about war. To be fair, the logistics of the world's first large-scale industrialized war were a nightmare that only a grind like Benjamin could handle. On the other hand, it's also possible that Davis wanted this hated Jew to be his fall guy. If that was the plan, it worked. As soon as things start going badly, who's going to be blamed? We have a Jew, a secretary of war, telling Stonewall Jackson what to do? And then the floodgates of anti-Semitism open up. Everybody turned on Judah Benjamin, the generals, but also the people. Davis protected Benjamin by then making him secretary of state. But it was still Judah Benjamin's job to deliver bad news. In late 1864, with the Confederacy on life support, Benjamin gave the biggest speech of his life to a crowd of thousands at the largest meeting space in Richmond. It turned out to be a kind of Borat-like moment in his otherwise brilliant career. You see, Benjamin had a genius idea for how to save the South. His genius idea was to free the slaves and draft them into the rebel army. And thus, Benjamin demonstrated his ultimate inability to read the room. He presented this idea to Jefferson Davis. For Davis, it was a horrifying idea. But ultimately said to Benjamin, okay, I want you to present this idea in public. And the speech is fascinating because he understands he's delivering poison. And so it begins with invocations of the glory of the cause and the heroic battle of the South and the overcoming odds, and he's, it's red meat. And then he says, but of course, we need resources. And if you had resources, if you had food or forage or something, you would turn it over to the cause because the cause is everything for you. He said, but what about men? Do we have men? Well, we're desperately short of men. The North is bigger than we are. They have more troops than we do. But we do have these 680,000 people who we keep enslaved. What about them? This was not the sort of thing white Southerners wanted to think about in 1864. And here, this Jew was throwing this unpleasant reality right in their faces. Like the Daughters of the Confederacy 80 years later, the Fathers of the Confederacy saw that this Jew wasn't so white after all. The Confederate Congress cast a vote of no confidence in Benjamin. But Davis would not let him resign, and Benjamin still kept that perpetual smile on his face. In his poem, John Brown's body. Stephen Vincent Benet has a beautiful passage about how Judah Benjamin had to perform belongingness in front of people who he knew did not actually think he belonged, who regarded him as an outsider, as a Jew. And so he describes Benjamin in a cabinet meeting with a kind of half smile on his face, as if hiding behind a silk-ribbed fan which captures, by the way, both the effeminacy, but even more this act of elaborate, never-stopping performance of being a part of a thing that he deeply wanted to be a part of, and yet he knew that others regarded it with profound suspicion. And he had a genius for a kind of performance which said, I am not performing. That was the highest level of the performance. That type of performance was something that nearly every Jew in America had to enact during this period, a constant public display of their Americanness at all costs. 
whether they lived in the North or the South. Any American Jew who made it anywhere near a circle of power only got there in one of two ways, by performing as elaborately as possible or by staying behind the scenes. We now understand that Jews were more deeply involved in certain behind-the-scenes activities than anybody could ever have imagined. That's the American Jewish historian Jonathan Sarna, who has studied Jews on both sides of the Civil War. One of those Jews behind the scenes in the North was a man named Abraham Jonas, a small-town lawyer in southern Illinois. In the 1850s, Jonas had befriended another small-town lawyer in southern Illinois, a guy named Abraham Lincoln. Jonas was instrumental in getting Lincoln the Republican nomination for president by packing the convention with Lincoln supporters. He also advised Lincoln's campaign and personally hosted one of the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Like Judah Benjamin, Abraham Jonas was a lawyer deeply invested in American politics. But Lincoln's most trusted Jewish advisor behind the scenes was actually someone a bit less qualified for the job. His podiatrist, Issachar Zachary. Yes, his podiatrist, as in the guy who took care of the bunions on Lincoln's feet. The truth is, Issachar Zachary was a snake oil salesman who was barely even qualified to take care of Lincoln's feet. No one could quite make out what he was doing with Abraham Lincoln. Zachary is a self-promoter, and he produces some books. Uh, The problem is that we now know that he completely plagiarized those books. Like Benjamin, Zachary the charlatan podiatrist was married to a woman he never lived with. Zachary appears to have been almost openly gay, even getting into a public lover's spat with another man on Broadway where he wound up with a gunshot wound. Like Benjamin, he somehow managed to become his president's right-hand man, except without the qualifications or the brains. Lincoln becomes uh, quite dependent on Zachary. And there's a lot of evidence that Zachary visited Lincoln at home. Uh, We have all sorts of letters uh, that Zachary sends him various kinds of gifts, pineapples and this and that. The pineapples for Lincoln's bunions were apparently enough to convince Lincoln that Zachary would make a terrific spy. That and the fact that Lincoln, along with the rest of non-Jewish America, was apparently convinced that all Jews knew all other Jews. Lincoln eventually sends Zachary to New Orleans after it is recaptured by the Union. And he sends him there without question because Zachary is Jewish and New Orleans and indeed Louisiana as a whole is filled with significant Jews in high places. And the hope is that Zachary will succeed in winning them back to the Union. The number of Jewish voters in the Union was well under 50,000 people. So why would Lincoln bother? Well, there's one obvious answer to that question. He imagined, as others had before him, that there were kind of Jewish connections that could be used to benefit the Union. Zachary would deal with Jews, high up Jews in Louisiana. He'd win them back over. There would be these Jewish connections. Those creepy assumptions about all Jews being secretly connected probably has something to do with the absolutely stupidest thing involving Issachar Zachary. In 1863, Lincoln decided to send his Jewish podiatrist to broker a peace deal with the Confederacy. I could not make this up. Lincoln apparently thought he was the right man for the job because, well, Zachary was a Jew, and so was Benjamin. So, of course, they'd hit it off. Lincoln was not entirely wrong because Benjamin, at the height of the Civil War, decided that this Jewish podiatrist was totally worth his valuable time. Whatever went on between Zachary and Benjamin, it did not result in a peace deal. 
and the podiatrist did not succeed where an entire army had failed. Once the North won and Lincoln was assassinated, Zachary's influence was over. But Judah Benjamin proved himself unsinkable. After the Confederacy's collapse, Benjamin finally ditched Jefferson Davis, who by this point had morphed into the Confederacy's King Lear. Jefferson Davis is at this point like a kind of an isolated crackpot who will not admit reality. And everybody, as generals, are saying to them, "Uh, Mr. President, there's 25,000 Confederate troops. We're facing 350,000 Union troops. We have to surrender. And Jefferson Davis says, never. And the other cabinet members are saying, you know, how are we going to convince this guy? Well, Judah Benjamin, whom they look to as the Davis whisperer, instead of doing that, gives a magnificent martial speech calling for the South to stand to the last man, to fight to the last man. Of course, Jefferson Davis is delighted. And this prolongs, this helps prolong the war. Well, finally, they've retreated all the way back to northern Georgia. And Judah Benjamin, who has said, I will never leave you, leaves him. Because he knew that if Union troops captured Jefferson Davis, they'd bring him back to Washington for a trial. And if they captured him, a Jew, who, by the way, I should add, was being blamed for the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, which had occurred on April 14th. And we're now talking about just uh, within a few days to a week after that. He'd be lynched. And thus began Judah Benjamin's epic escape. First, he disguised himself as a Frenchman, with a Jewish friend of his posing as his interpreter. They blundered their way through Georgia together until his friend abandoned him. Then he disguised himself as a farmer and walked through Georgia and Florida, traveling at night and sleeping in swamps during the day so as not to be discovered. One day in a swamp in Florida, he looked up in a tree and saw a parrot. The parrot then said to him, Hi for Jeff! Hi for Jeff! There was only one Jeff who mattered in the South, Jefferson Davis. Benjamin figured that someone who taught a parrot to say, Hi, for Jeff, might be someone who would be sympathetic to his plight. So he threw a rock at the tree to make the parrot fly and then followed it home to a farmhouse, which was indeed owned by a loyal rebel who knew exactly who Judah Benjamin was and hid him for several days until federal marshals came searching for him, at which point Benjamin hid in the bushes while clutching the muzzle of the family dog. Then Benjamin fled again. He reached the Florida coast and convinced another loyal rebel to hide him in his boat, where he subsisted for several days entirely on turtles. Several days later, with Yankee patrols approaching, Benjamin's host covered his face in grease, dressed him in an apron and, bizarrely, a yarmulke, to disguise him as the boat's Jewish cook. The U.S. Marshals boarded the boat and stood face to face with Judah Benjamin, and merely remarked that they had never before seen a Jewish cook on a boat. At Key West, Benjamin boarded a boat bound for Bimini in the Caribbean. That boat got caught in a water spout that swamped it until Benjamin had to bail it out with his hat. At Bimini, he boarded another boat bound for Nassau in the Bahamas. That boat was filled with a cargo of sponges, which had taken on water in bad weather. The sponges slowly expanded until the boat exploded. Benjamin then jumped ship and was rescued by a rowboat that was so overloaded with passengers that only five inches of it were above the waterline. 35 miles to Nassau with only one oar, but after eight hours, they made it. When Benjamin finally reached Nassau, he was relieved to board an actual ship heading for Southampton in England. Do I even need to tell you that that ship caught fire? Benjamin did finally make it to England. He already had British citizenship by another completely random twist of fate. He happened to be born in the Danish island of St. Croix during the six months in 1811 that it was under British occupation. Benjamin then started a wildly successful second career where he was admitted to the British bar, he became a British barrister, he rose to the level of Queen's Council, and wrote a textbook on British law that is used in British universities to this day. So this man was unsinkable. Today, 
Judah Benjamin is still unsinkable. And that is exactly the problem. For many years, American Jews saw in Benjamin a figure to admire. One of the early children's books published by the Jewish Publication Society. I well remember reading it. A Mr. Benjamin's sword told this story of this improbable Jewish figure reminding us that all Jews weren't rabbis or garment workers, but in fact, that, that there were figures like Judah Benjamin and could be role models for young Jews. After all, he was the highest ranking Jewish politician in American history. Judah Benjamin on the $2 Confederate bill was the first time a Jewish face was featured on currency for thousands of years. But the evil behind the Confederacy was always obvious, no matter how much people tried to get rid of it. The Jews of Charlotte in 1948 were actually grappling with that same evil, with an awful and shameful desperation. They had recently been reminded by the Holocaust of the high price of being perceived as different from their neighbors. Perhaps they wanted their names on that Judah Benjamin monument for the same reason the Daughters of the Confederacy did, to celebrate a racist past. But the Jews of Charlotte also wanted their names on that monument to protect themselves from a racist present. That choice was a moral and practical failure. In 2021, we're lucky to have the opportunity to make a better one. What do you do with a past that won't sink, even if you'd like it to? Sometimes you reenact it over and over, trying for a better ending. Sometimes you retell the story in different ways, hoping to find new meaning in it. On the other hand, you could also do what people have done with Judah Benjamin's grand townhouse in New Orleans which he built in the 1840s for his wife. There are plenty of landmark Confederate homes in the American South, raising all kinds of uncomfortable questions. Judah Benjamin's historic home is still standing in the French Quarter. The thing is, it's not exactly a landmark. Eric Wisnia, a retired rabbi from New Jersey, is a Civil War enthusiast who embarked on a pilgrimage to Benjamin's home. He had become interested in the Civil War as a child in the 1950s and 60s while watching the civil rights movement unfold on TV. My mother then bought me books, The American Heritage Life of Robert E. Lee and The American Heritage Book of Stonewall Jackson. And I started reading about those two guys who were, of course, not Jewish, but they were religious men who, who seemed to be somewhat moral, and yet they owned slaves. I started reading and found out more, and because I was Jewish, uh, Judaism was very important in my life. And I started learning about Jews who lived in America at that time. And I found out that there were Jews who were in the anti-slavery movement, and there were Jews who owned slaves. And when I began to realize how pervasive slavery was in America before the Civil War, and learned that Jews owned slaves, I was surprised and tried to figure out how could Jews own slaves? I mean, we have a holiday called Passover. Rabbis like Wisnia have been thinking about the morality of slavery in the Civil War since, well, the Civil War. In January of 1861, right after Lincoln was elected, there was a major debate in the United States over slavery. And it was conducted in the newspapers by two different American rabbis. Rabbi Morris Rafal of B'nai Jeshurun Congregation in New York City, at that point an Orthodox congregation, he gave a sermon the first Shabbos uh, of the new year in which he defended slavery. And of course, he said that slavery was not a nice thing. He was not happy to defend slavery, but that slavery was in the Bible and that Abraham and uh, Job and many other people had owned slaves and that this was a noble biblical institution and therefore legal. Well, of course, that hit all the newspapers and became very, very uh, prominently displayed, so much so that by March, the leading reform rabbi of Baltimore, Rabbi David Einhorn, was uh, so horrified and angry that this defense of slavery, that in Baltimore, which was a, uh, a slave state part of Maryland, Einhorn gave a fiery denunciation of slavery. For Wisnia, the fascination with figures like Benjamin doesn't come from admiration, but from a desire to understand them. 
along with the horrors they inflicted and defended. If you want to understand the Civil War, you have to understand America back in 1860. And slavery was part of America. It was part of everyday America. Benjamin always intrigued me. In 2011, Wisnia was attending a national rabbinic convention in New Orleans. And he had the opportunity to visit Judah Benjamin's historic home. He jumped at the chance. Let's just say it was not quite what he expected. A few days before flying out, I got a phone call from my good friend, Rabbi Dr. Lance Sussman. And Lance discovered that Benjamin had lived at 350 Bourbon Street before the war. Lance said to me, the house is still standing and uh, we wanted to see the house. So we went and we found the house. We knocked on the door, or I knocked on the door. Lance didn't want to have anything to do with it because we noticed that it is a gentleman's club. Yes, that's right. Judah Benjamin's historic home is now a strip club. And Lance said to me, Wiz, it's a whorehouse. A sweet little old lady opened the door, and uh, she saw me standing there wearing my typical convention uniform, sandals, shorts, a T-shirt that said Beth Chaim in Hebrew, and my yarmulke, colored, of course, to match my T-shirt. And I said quickly, well, hello, ma'am. I'm Rabbi Eric Wisnia from Princeton Junction, New Jersey, and this is my friend, Dr. Lance Sussman, one of the greatest Civil War scholars in America today. And we've heard that this home was built by Judah P. Benjamin. Do you know anything about it? Well, I think it was obviously my boyish charm and disarming smile that intrigued her. And she was bored to death. She was the day manager, she told us. Well, she let us in. And uh, there was nothing left of Benjamin in the house, of course. Uh, all the stairways, which were original, were wide and curving. And, and you can see that the house, which had aged 150 years, had been classy at one time. She told us that she had heard a rumor that it was Benjamin's home, but that it had been confiscated by perfidious Yankees right after the war and sold at auction. This kind lady was happy to show me and Lance all about our boy Judah P., his old house. She assured me that the big bar and poles for dancing were not original. We're saying our goodbyes. And she says, but you gentlemen didn't see the slaves' quarters. Lance and I exchanged glances. So she took us out to the back of the house to see a little line of seven cubicles in a row. And our hostess said, well, these are the girls' rooms where they entertain and where they, well, you rabbis don't want to know what they do now, do you? Today, you can go and see where Judah Benjamin's slaves lived. That little row of rooms is kind of like an actual monument to the Civil War, and even more so to slavery in general. That is, to America's foundational sin. Of course, instead of being a monument, Benjamin's slave quarters are being used for the oldest and often the most exploitative form of entertainment. The absurdity of this earnest rabbi touring this strip club in order to visit the slave quarters reminds me of my discomfort at seeing my readers in their Confederate uniforms. The reality is that not every historical figure is redeemable, even if they're unforgettable. There's this urge we have in this country to paper over the evils of the past. And then there's the related urge to turn the past into entertainment. Some might even say that's what this podcast is doing. Though, I hope I've given you things to think seriously about along the way. All of us live in a haunted present. The past never goes away, even if the dancing poles are not original, and even if we take a crowbar to it. And fulfill the rabbi's dreams in 19, 1948 of throwing this thing into the river, like that's, that's one solution. But another solution I think also is to take it and to own it, actually, and to then also put up a memorial about both our own responsibility and our own roles in this matter, and also our changing beliefs around racial justice and really trying to come to terms with what we have done. In 2021, anti-Semitism and racism, both past and present, are impossible to ignore. And they are more intertwined than we might imagine, interfering with our ability to talk honestly about either. Benjamin's so-called success came at a grotesque cost to others that some would rather forget. Today, he's still there, sitting in storage, waiting for repairs. 
And now we have an opportunity to make those repairs. Growing up as a religious Jew, I sometimes used to wonder why we always reenacted the same old stories again and again. We already knew these stories, so why attempt to relive them? What was the point? The reason why it's worth rethinking Judah Benjamin, well, is the reason perhaps one rethinks anybody, which is not that that person changes, but that you change and, and the world you're in changes and the things people care about change. And that's the real reason why we revisit and reenact these stories over and over. The stories don't change, but we do. I hope we can find the courage to keep changing. Adventures with Dead Jews is brought to you by Tablet Studios and Soul Shop. It's created and written by me, Dara Horn, and produced and edited by Josh Cross and Robert Scaramuccia. The managing producer is Sara Fredman Ader, and the executive producers are Liel Leibovitz, Stephanie Butnick, Gabby Weinberg, and Dan Luxenberg. We hope you'll rate and review it wherever you get your podcasts so that more people can join us on our adventures. My new book, People Love Dead Jews, is published by W.W. Norton and is available wherever books are sold. It's also available as an audiobook from Recorded Books. I hope you'll check it out. For this episode, special thanks to Asher Knight, Jim Traub, Jonathan Sarna, and Eric Wisnia. You can find more information about their work in the show notes, along with other sources to learn more about topics in today's show. You can also check out my novel, All Other Nights, which features Judah Benjamin and other Civil War Jews. Next week, we'll be exploring what 20th century American Jews once called the Gentleman's Agreement. And we'll try to answer that question we first encountered in episode one. What if Jews aren't just like everybody else? I'm Dara Horn, and I'll see you then for more Adventures with Dead Jews. <laughs> <laughs>